Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. We have a lot to talk about, and I want to drill down about some of the lessons that we can learn in the Islamist approach to the war in Ukraine, to their approach to Russia, to the hypocrisy, duplicity, and corruption that we see in the likes of Ilhan Omar and others that is on full display, full display in their positions on what to do with Russia, what to do with Iran, what to do in Ukraine. And we'll also do a bit of an update on Saudi Arabia. Longtime prisoner has finally been released. Not any sign of compassion on the Saudis. It's been 10 years, and he was sentenced to 10 years. So the authoritarian thugs, the mafia of the Saudi royal family, finally let him out at the end of his sentence. Not an ounce of compassion. They sentenced him to 10 years. He's out. We'll talk about that. And last, child marriage in America. You'd think this was just a topic for Islamist regimes, Islamist countries, but it's permitted and 44 states still have it. A very touching, heartfelt, poignant piece in the Baltimore Sun on Maryland's uh, approach to this issue as the legislature is soon to vote on it, and we'll talk about that. First, cannot ignore the fact that the radical Islamists that care and many of the uh, um, just um, rabidly anti-Semitic organizations like the Council on American-Islamist Relations have really shown their true colors again in webinars and otherwise that have been talking about Ukraine and their obsession, their supremacism is revealed by the fact that every conflict in the world they look at through the lens of how is it different and how it should benefit their own cause. Not as Americans, not as folks who want to see the end, the defeat of true supremacism as we see with Russian Putinism and as we see in other threats to global stability, China, etc. But they don't do that. They're centers for Islamophobia. They're centers for Islamism. will co-opt and exploit every, every conflict in order to make a point about political Islam, their advocacy, and especially to denigrate America and to denigrate Israel. Stephen Emerson very poignantly has a good piece out this week about how anti-Israel voices push all the wrong lessons when it comes to Ukraine. And at the investigative project, he writes, Racism and Islamophobia help explain the Western world's horror and swift actions in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Speakers agreed and backslapped each other Thursday last week in a discussion live-streamed by CARE, the Council on American Islamic, or Islamist, I should say, for Islamist relations. And they quoted, There's some inconsistency, to put it mildly, in the way the Western world has reacted to this crime 
compared to others, said CARE Deputy Edward Ahmed Mitchell. Muslims in China, Kashmir, and the Palestinian territories are not seen as heroic when they resist oppressors. But there's only two differences, white and religion, Muslim, he said later in the program. No one making this argument considered why seeing Russia, and I think Steve points out the obvious here, that one of the world's nuclear powers, led by a dictator bent on expanding his empire, launched an unprovoked war in Europe, might trigger strong reactions in the West. The challenge to NATO allies was never mentioned. The discussion was just the latest in a campaign by Islamists to equate, to morally equate. Their moral equivalency battles, if you will, are always, one after the other, corrupt. They ignore and try to morally equate terrorism of one versus the other, and then they try to minimize the severity of, of, of the moral decadence of terrorism and asynchronous warfare. But I have to tell you, as an American who served in the military, there is nothing to me more rampantly un-American and anti-American than someone who can't basically see in a history in which we fought a cold war for 40, 50 years until the wall fell, and now it seems like that cold war is rekindling itself as Putin wants to regain a lot of the lost Eastern Bloc countries in Europe. And as he tries to do that, you can't help but see, okay, if you love America, your lens should be one of an American worldview. If you hate America, your lens would be some other lens, either a Russian lens or a communist China lens or some other lens. If you truly are a patriotic American who believes in the inalienable rights of individuals to live under a constitution like the United States Constitution, you will support other nations that have similar values in inalienable rights, believing in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and other similar, other similar type beliefs. But no, the Islamists here show their stripes, and these aren't just any old Islamists. This is Hussam Elush who is uh, um, a, a known to be, was rapidly anti-American in the, in the, during the Iraq war, basically uh, defending Iraqi forces of Saddam sometimes against and, and, and spreading the propaganda of Saddam's forces for years as care denigrated American activities in Iraq, as they were liberating Iraqis. And now we've seen it turned over by the left and Islamist Advisors for Obama and others turned over to Iran and other powers that be. Oh, and did we see this week as Iran sent missiles into Erbil as America is weakening? Did we see any Islamists speak out against the Iranian regime and its brazen attack on Iraqi sovereignty? Crickets crickets. Hussam Elush has been known to call me and Uncle Tom and any Muslims that disagree with his Islamist supremacist lens through which he views America and Israel and Europe and the hypocrisy with which he advances advocacy for Turkey's Islamist of the AKP, for Qatar's Islamist moves, movements like the Muslim Brotherhood 
and Al Jazeera's propaganda arm that his care and others are so willingly, willfully wanting to advocate for. And yet, here he reveals his stripes. And yet, I find it amazing that these guys are still used by any media that calls themselves American. American media that, uh, American media that really has a set of standards that should be uh, uh, applicable to those. Yeah, we don't all, obviously it should be diverse when it comes to policy and otherwise, but when it comes to folks that clearly don't look at the events of the day through an American lens, a Western lens of freedom and liberty, but rather through a lens of what can benefit the Hamas movement in Palestine areas, Palestinian areas, or the Islamist movement of the Muslim Brotherhood or the Khomeinist of Iran or the AKP of Turkey, if that's their lens, then you're going to see garbage like this in their webinar. They don't have any sympathy or even verbalize it for a few sentences during an entire webinar about the fact that this was a very massive, massive threat to the stability of Europe, countries that were slowly beginning to come to terms with European democracy and NATO, countries that are also at battle with Europe um, and wanting to remain with Russia, such as Belarus, versus Estonia, that is part of NATO, and three or four other countries that left Russian spheres to then become part of NATO. Now, what's going to come of that? Obviously, the, the defense of the Ukrainians is something we have to do by proxy. A no-fly zone is really not an option for anyone who's pretty rational about these things and that it be, basically would involve declaring war on Russia. And that's not rational at this point. The risks and the benefits don't ba even balance out. God protect the Ukrainian people from the blatant and brazen aggression of Putin and his army. But obviously people of good conscience will do everything we can to protect them and to help them behind the scenes, to arm them. And yes, we should give them MIG, uh, MIGs or whatever it is that we can get into their defense. And I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that Russia would consider that a declaration of war if we got them jets. Uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, countries that we get, and we did this in Vietnam and elsewhere, and it was never considered that the U.S. and, war, and Russia had been directly at war. It was proxy wars. And this is common. Saw it in Syria, saw it in Iraq, and in so many places, this is the way Russia does business. But uh, they know that jets would be an unbelievable onslaught upon their convoys and the deployment of the people necessary to take over a country the size of Ukraine with not only its tens of millions of people but its large landmass larger than Texas. There are so many red flags and inconsistencies and you know Steve Emerson points them out in his piece that if they really had an ability to reflect internally, the Islamist, 
the Palestinian Hamas supporters of CARE and others, would realize that contrary to their own propaganda about Israel and Palestinian areas, Putin does not believe Ukraine should exist as an independent democratic country. He gave them two options, surrender or face annihilation to the Ukrainians. Sort of like what Hamas wants to do to Israel. That's the Palestinian rejectionist formula best exemplified by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Their own charters make it clear that the options for Israeli Jews are to surrender or face unceasing violence. And they constantly, in their bylaws, the PIJ, says, any peaceful solution, jihad is the solution to liberate Palestine and topple the infidel regimes. Any peaceful solution for the Palestinian cause, jihad is the solution, and the martyrdom style is the only option for liberation. The goal is to create a state of terror, instability, instability, panic in the souls of Zionists and especially the groups of settlers and force them to leave their houses according to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Jerusalem Post editorial this week notes that there have never been Ukrainian rocket fire aimed at Russian civilians. Ukrainians never tried to throw the Russians into the Black Sea or arm their people with explosive vests and encourage them to ride buses in Moscow and blow themselves up along with as many innocent passengers as possible. There's no serious person that can argue that Russia is acting in self-defense. Putin claims he's freeing Ukraine from its Jewish, yet somehow Nazi president. Okay, rather than acknowledging these elements, driving Putin's Ukraine's war, or any role violent Islamists have played in other conflicts, it's easier to just blame bigotry and focus on the straw man, the non-sequitur. And they continued in their narrative to say that the this is about white people, blue-eyed, blonde-haired people, racializing it, talking about Islamophobia and otherwise. And it's patently absurd. And listen, I come to you on this topic as somebody who, as a Syrian-American, who's lost family in the Syrian civil war and they continue to live under a horrifically genocidal regime in Syria, aided by Russia, aided by Russian soldiers, Iranian soldiers, Hezbollah and otherwise, and reigns of terror for the last 60 years, let alone since the revolution in Syria in 2011 that's now been snuffed out thanks to Russia. It would be easy for me to complain about some of the difference in approach but to be consistent, we did call for a no-fly zone from 2011, March, when the war started. So that would remain a civil war, not to have any American troops on the ground in Syria, but simply a no-fly zone against the Syrian Air Force. My calls for the no-fly zone ended on September 30th, 2015, at which time Russia began to fly air operations over Syrian airspace with a memorandum of understanding, unbelievably, signed by the Obama administration, that they would not enter conflict. Now, not unbelievably that we not enter conflict. No, we should not start open conflict against Russia. But we should have began air operations in the area before Russia even thought about it, because we knew that was their 
surrogate in Assad, but mostly it's an Iranian surrogate state. But Obama was too busy wanting to placate for the nuclear deal and was handing Iran and thus Russia everything possible in order to get that horrifically idiotic deal, the nuclear deal. But I still think this is consistent. Once Russia began to fly our operations, our calls for rash from rational American Syrian Americans ended for a no-fly zone because it doesn't make any sense. United States and Russia should not be competing for no-fly zones, which would then end up causing the beginning of a war between the United States and Russia that would quickly escalate into a possible global entanglement. And this inconsistency of Islamists is not just about CARE, or the Islamic Society of North America, or others that have been inconsistent and just wanting to look through the lens of, of uh, uh, their own biases and anti-Americanism and anti-Zionism. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar cast a, 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 a defining vote for who she is as a corrupt human being. She voted against the bill this week to ban Russian oil imports. She voted against a bill that would have stopped us paying Russian for Russian oil, which is, I don't know, 78% of our, 10% of our oil intake. And listen, I don't want to see gas prices go up. We can replace that with oil from elsewhere. How about our own oil? We were an oil exporting country. Let's revigorate that, and hopefully within a few months you could get that ramp back up. I know people have talked about the Keystone Pipeline. Absolutely, that should have been allowed to continue, set aside all the jobs that were lost when President Biden or O'Biden stopped that. But that would obviously take quite a while to get going. But there are a lot of reserves and, and uh, other companies that could easily increase American oil output limited by the Biden administration. But the likes of Ilhan Omar showed the real stripes. And now he's, she's beginning to see primary challenges since a lot of rational Democrats are wondering what the heck is going on there. Why would Omar support Russia? Well, I'll remind you that she's been all over supporting the Iranian deal. She's been all over apologizing for the Iranian regime, for Qatar, for Turkey, and the Islamist axes of their red-green axis. That red-green axis includes the cooperation of China-Russia with Venezuela and then with Iran, Turkey, Qatar, and other Islamist regimes. Now, Omar said, oh, we say we are in the business of defending democracy. She told The Hill, we say we're in the business of defending human rights. And if that's the case, it doesn't make any sense to me that we are so eager to condemn Putin, who's waging an immoral war. But we are not when it comes to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. Oh, so she votes against. She wants to keep buying oil from Russia and probably wants to jack it up from Iran from the zero it is right now and says that the reason to do that is because there's other mafias like the Saudis that we are buying oil from. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm not a fan of our dependency on Russia on uh, Saudi oil either. But the way out of that morass right now, there's a global security balance in that equation. 
and the way out of that morass is America becoming an oil exporter and also beginning to shift us away just as we quickly shifted away from Russia, didn't we? Even Shell Oil and other companies now have begun to remove their investments in that country. And that's what we should do. And, you know, listen, there's an approach in which you look acutely over the next few days, weeks, months, on relationships that, for example, President Trump reestablished sort of that balance in the Middle East that we had lost under Obama, where we shifted from Sunni support to Shia support with the Iranian regimes and others, and abandoned the Egypt, Saudi Arabia's, the Emiratis and others, and that caused a huge destabilization with fear among the Arab monarchs and dictators that somehow they were going to be lay waste to the Shia radicals of the Islamists of the Khomeinists and others. And that geopolitics was balanced. Now, is that the best foreign policy? It was certainly better than the Obama foreign policy, and it certainly moved us forward. But no, I'm not a fan of appeasement of dictators, but there is a way to approach them in a way that's more balanced and more methodical and not just implosive to regions in which various mafia groups want to exert control. But then there's the others that simply don't look at a methodical way to do that. Yes, the Saudis, it's not just about getting their oil. It's about why are they starting a, a Gulf um, investments in the United States with tournaments and the um, the SGL, the Super Golf League, and I've talked to you about Phil Mickelson's bizarre situation right now because he spilled the beans on what's happening there and uh, um, and also has a weird moral compass where he thinks the PGA somehow, or whatever their faults are, is, is worse than the Saudis. Um, but uh, all of these things, uh, we see the Saudis uh, investing billions in American companies from Citibank to Lucid Motors, uh, an electrical car company, electric car company that is is fascinating that they're investing in. It's really more about influence and control than it is about green energy, isn't it? But that can be approached in a methodical way in which we look for economic energy and otherwise independence from Islamists and radical regimes. And I'm going to talk about the Saudis in a minute, but the Russians this week just started using Syrian mercenaries in the war. All these things don't seem to matter to the likes of the Islamists, that the Assadists are now helping kill Ukrainians in this invasion, that the Assadists and the Khomeinists truly are entering into other wars to help their to help those who uh, were their benefactors then give back to them as they helped slaughter Syrians for 10 years. But now let's look at the Saudis. It's interesting that uh, Farid Zakaria, or Zakaria, however you want to pronounce it, on CNN wrote a piece about how it's a post-American world. Uh, we were talking about that, uh, Farid, uh, back during the Obama era that you were so deeply embedded with as one of their primary foreign policy advisors while you claim to be objective as a journalist. But now you're talking about a post-American era because 
the Saudis aren't taking Biden's phone calls, that the Emiratis aren't taking his phone calls, that all of these activities, Iran is launching missiles into Iraq. This is weakness. This is rank weakness from Biden. And the the post-Americanism is not something that just started. It was truly the foreign policy that you oversaw, that you had significant input into, that you influenced during the Obama administration. This post-Americanism that we're seeing now, the question is not only making the diagnosis that's existed forever, uh, ever meaning almost two decades now, not two decades, let's say 10 to 15 years since 08, when Obama started that decline in American influence and made us more passive as we sat back and led from behind in Europe and elsewhere. Now, our influence is no longer as American strength, but rather from American weakness, from what we have to do. How do we avoid conflict? Not how do we set the standard? Not how do we lead through strength and obtain peace through strength? No, those words are no longer emanating from the likes of Biden and the progressivists that are actually taking the side of thugs around the world, be it the Chinese or or others that they seem to not want to exert influence as they continue to weaken us through inflationary policies, energy dependency, and printing of money that weakens America's economic influence, let alone our foreign policy influence. But now let's turn to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia this week released Raif Bedawi. Raif Bedawi was a prisoner of conscience who, when I was on the U.S. Commission of International Religious Freedom, I was appointed in 2012, and that was the year he was imprisoned. Within months of me being put on the commission and other of us new commissioners, I was a McConnell appointee. Rafe Bedoui was put in jail because he did the crime of liking a Christian Facebook page. The crime of questioning Islam and appearing to say things, and I think it's assumed that he's left Islam. I don't know. Maybe he hasn't. His wife has been doing unbelievable work through his foundation and others to bring to bring the light of day to what the Saudis have done. And so many have pled for his release. Even his attorneys, some have had to serve time in Saudi Arabia because they so vigorously defended his case in the corrupt an evil legal system that is the Saudi legal system. He was sentenced to 10 years in 2012, and it's 2022. So please make no mistake that his release now is no compassion from the Saudis. He was whipped, flogged. I was part of a movement that a few of us said that we would, we would take floggings instead of him, and I meant it. They do 50 lashes, 100 lashes. And that ultimately we told the Saudis at the time in a press release that people that are weak and that are not being fed or that are in prison can be weaker and will die often from floggings. And that medieval regime was going to put them through that. From what I understand, they did, I think, 
I don't know how many, maybe 50, but never finished it. And now he's released. I think ultimately his experience should be a, should serve as a lesson of the evils. If we ever forget the evils, it's so easy to forget the evils of, of the past. What do I mean by that? Well, you saw the Atlantic magazine this week was, was roundly criticized by most journalistic people of integrity. FAIR, for example, an, organiz an organization that claims to represent fairness and accuracy in reporting. This is no conservative organization. It's a progressivist organization, but has certainly brought attention to a lot of uh, media complicity when it comes to regimes and other hypocrisies, if you will. They claim to be a national progressive media watchdog group challenging corporate media bias, spin, and misinformation. And I have to give them credit. Their report on what the Atlantic did, we've always known that the Atlantic is compromised because of various streams of cash flow for their magazine and otherwise, and people have wanted to debate that with me in the past, and they are certainly part of the establishment. But this piece that they did, and Ari Paul wrote a good piece for fair on the Saudi PR, paying off at the Atlantic. Graham Wood, who, by the way, was wrote some excellent pieces about ISIS and radical Islamist ideology and otherwise with some good reporting, but now he's sort of in the tank for at the Atlantic. He wrote, The crown prince still wants to convince the world that he's saving his country, wrote the Atlantic's Graham Wood which is why he met twice in recent months with me and the editor-in-chief of this magazine, Jeffrey Goldberg. And so many have talked about... Now, obviously, the Islamists that are anti-Saudi have all come out complaining about the peace in the Atlantic. Obviously, one of the most vocal Islamist propagandists, Karen Atiya at the Washington Post, wrote the Atlantic's elevation of MBS as an insult to journalism. So, as I've said before, just because they have common enemies does not make us necessarily forget about the crimes of hum against humanity that MBS and his thugs do. But, and you know, the Jamal Khashoggi case is classic. Atiyah was a massive apologist for Khashoggi. And uh, uh, he did not deserve the type of corporal and uh, militant punishment that he received in his death. And I think that, uh, obviously, these are two different issues, which is one is Islamists sometimes will have common enemies with us, but yet their core ideology as Islamists is an anathema, is incompatible with Western ideas. But the topic right now at hand is MBS in Saudi Arabia. And the interview and the piece in the Atlantic is an abomination to journalism. It tries to humanize MBS. It tries to, uh, in many ways, look at what he's doing as the only option that somehow he's bringing reform. Why? Because he brings concerts, he brings 
sort of a uh, oppressive force to push back against the old regimes and the old Wahhabi mindset. And while many of us view that as welcome towards reform, these methods do not work. They don't work. You can't defeat radical Islamism. You can't defeat the Salafist, draconian Salafism of ISIS and others by imprisoning them, torturing them. This week, Saudi Arabia did another massive set of executions. Who was in there? The last time they did 48, 49 executions. Most of them were clerics and others of the Shia sort of non-Sunni variety. That was five, six, seven years ago. And now, MBS uses these executions usually to get rid of political rivals, power rivals, religious rivals, and otherwise. Claims it's anti-terror, claims it's against drug use and those who've been selling narcotics and otherwise, but as we knew on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, there's often very little evidence that's borne forward to legitimize such accusations. But such is true of an oppressive, repressive regime. There's no doubt that the Saudis have been having a significant PR blitz. And the magazine has had a, a, a bit of a schizophrenic approach to it. Last year, The Atlantic, November 15, 2021, ran a lengthy piece about the rise of autocracy around the world with a heavy emphasis on China and Venezuela. But Saudi Arabia appeared three times as a potential financier of pariah states and in complicity with China in targeting Uyghurs and finally highlighting the Saudi royal family when it said that former President Donald Trump cozied up to autocrats, supposedly. But the rest of the article focused on its details of regimes less friendly with the United States. The PR arm that it seems to have become in the Atlantic only went so far. And obviously it was measured and had some criticism, but it basically was a very positive piece. And why am I... You know, many have said, well, let them, they are making big changes. You should be positive about the changes that they're making. The method of implementation is everything. Even our militaries, when we have recruits that we want to train, if they are abused into submission, even if their mission is to fight for America, that is corrupt, that is evil. The method of getting your people to follow your lead is an important is an important measure of the values that you are promoting. And if we ignore those or somehow say that the ends justifies the means in a utilitarian fashion, then we become as corrupt as any authoritarian regime. We cannot compromise our values and we must be even more critical to those who are trying to advance our values so that it doesn't tarnish and end up with moral equivalency of the likes of what we do, what we believe in with those who are truly our enemies, right? I started out the program today talking about the corruption of Ilhan Omar, of the Islamists and how they're approaching Russia and not defending Ukraine.
So moral equivalency is an important thing to avoid, especially, obviously, when it doesn't exist. There is no moral equivalency when it comes to the way MBS is trying to seek an ends in Saudi Arabia. There's a video that, that um, I can share with all of you, but it's a two-minute video in which MBS talks about how he's going to change the Saudi schools. That's a good thing, to change the Saudi schools. But he says, we are no longer going to have many jurists, and they used to have many with few differing opinions, but nothing of significant difference. He says, now we're going to have one, one class on Quran, one class on, the, on theology. That's it. And they're going to focus more on Saudi nationalism. So he's shifting the country from a Islamic Wahhabi Salafi dictatorship into a Saudi, House of Saud, Saudi nationalist dictatorship. And we saw this in the Middle East. This is not a new tool. The Jamal Abdel Nasser's of the world were about, supposedly about women's liberation while they advanced Arab nationalism and Arabism. And you still see today now being released by many anti-Islamists videos of Jamal Abdel Nasser talking about how women deserve the right to equality so that they don't have to be forced into what's put on their head. And by itself, that seems like a very appropriate thought. The hijab should not be forced on anybody. But when a dictator, a ruthless dictator, says that, he's using it to curry populist opinion, but in no way is that how he runs his regime. Jamal Abdel Nasser was a ruthless Arabist dictator, a fascist, and he did so no different than dictators across the planet, from Putin to Xi and others. But if the opium of the masses is religion, or if it's Egyptianism, Arabism, Saudism, whatever it might be, the rule of law is about the equality of man and woman and mankind, not about pushing forth one interpretation, even if that interpretation, even if that interpretation might be correct. You can't defeat theocracy. Yes, you might have need a revolution to do so initially, if they won't allow the rule of law, but then as you come to power, as you try to transition society, it needs to be done fairly, Islamically, religiously, morally, ethically, genuinely. So, Saudis have made some improvements. They are shifting away from the theological obsessions of their previous movements and uh, you know some of that may decrease radicalization but it may also create an equal and opposite reaction because of the methods that MBS is choosing the execution of 83 people some 81 I'm sorry people a few days ago on Saturday that the government claimed were belonging to militant groups was the largest mass execution carried out in the kingdom in modern history. And as and as news, news agencies and the AP reports, it wasn't clear why the kingdom chose this week to do that other than possibly the world's distraction with the Russia-Ukraine war. 
The number of death penalty cases being carried out in Saudi Arabia has dropped during the COVID pandemic, though the kingdom continues to behead convicts under King Salman and his son, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. They claim that it was terrorists. Bottom line is, is we need to look with a critical lens. We need to look at what's the longer strategy for us to advance the ideas of liberty and freedom in countries like Saudi Arabia. Last, I wanted to share with you an article from a brave woman by the name of Ali Abbas in the Baltimore Sun on March 8th. And in her piece, she said, Maryland must not fail to outlaw child marriage a seventh time. A seventh time. She said, I'm an American who's lived my whole life in my beloved state of Maryland. I wanted to stay here and continue raising my children here, but legislators are making that difficult by refusing to take simple steps to eliminate a human rights abuse that nearly destroyed me, her, Ali Abbas, child marriage. She said, I didn't want to get married at 17. I wanted to finish high school and attend UCLA. I wanted choices in life and the power to make them. Even after she faked an attempted suicide attempt, in hopes that her guardians would realize that she thought death would be better than being married off, she was flown to Pakistan, foreign to her, to marry. Within weeks, she was married off to a stranger and left there. She was bullied, beaten, shamed, forced. She endured marital, so-called marital rape. I say so-called marital because she didn't consent to the marriage, but certainly she was raped beginning on her wedding night. She, said, she was told to sit still and let him do everything. Her then sister-in-law told her, because a wife who refuses will be cursed by angels throughout the night. She had three pregnancies, all without her consent, and she became a remote-controlled toy. And she goes on to describe what she lived through. She waited, and and he remained he remained in Pakistan awaiting his visa to enter the U.S., and she somehow kept her promise to put herself through college while pregnant, working different jobs and raising her children on her own. She then withdrew her petition for her then-husband's visa the day she made the decision to free herself from this culture of misogyny and free her children from it. She took the risk of unchaining herself from the generational cycle of abuse on the same day her uncle told her that the only way out of marriage was her death because getting a divorce is the worst thing a Muslim woman could do. She talks about an organization, a non-profit organization dedicated to ending forced child marriage in the U.S. called Unchained at Last. I would look that organization up. They do a lot of good work. Maryland is one of 44 U.S. states that still allow child marriage before the age of 18. And it could be even done with loopholes as young as 15 to be entered into marriage. They failed six times to pass simple legislation to end child marriage. And it's possibly going to fail again a seventh time. Six states have done it. The bill carves out a dangerous, unnecessary loophole for 17-year-olds. That's the age at which she was forced to be married and forced into human rights abuses. The logic is obvious. Courageous women like Alia, courageous women like her are ignored and 
if somehow society has determined, then we can or we can debate about whether 18 somehow magically became the age of adulthood. But that's the age we begin voting. That's the age we send our children into battle. And the age of consent, the age of maturity. But yet somehow marital age is different. I mean, if anything... Society, culture is changing to where people are getting married much later in life now. Average somewhere 30 or, or, or around that time. And yet, we think it's important to maintain the ability. Despite, if you look at the risk-benefit analysis, regardless of what you believe, that the, the minimization of the government's intervention, and I'm a conservative, I, I understand these things. But the, the risks are far, far outweigh the benefits when you look at the exploitation of young women by men much older than them who decide that they're going to marry them, especially in Islamist, radical, cultural proclivities. This has to be stopped. Similarly, the Ayan Hirsi Ali Foundation is doing a lot of good work when it comes to ending female genital mutilation with, I think, 26, 27 states or so having ended that. Why isn't it 50 states? I don't understand that. Remember the Michigan case that I was quite outspoken with on, the doctors that were coming in from Minnesota and to Detroit to commit those acts of FGM? The federal case fell apart because the court ruled that Michigan's law that allowed operation on seven-year-olds and didn't outlaw FGM took precedence because of state rights. Gosh, we have so much work to do to preserve the values that this country believes in. Isn't that more important things for us to be debating, discussing, and spreading information on than denigrating what America is as a society, a foundation of values in this critical race theory and other nonsense? Well... Thank you for being with me this week. Spread the word about Reform This podcast. Find me at Twitter at Reform This Radio and also at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. And tell your friends about the podcast at iTunes and elsewhere. God bless. We'll see you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.